Stephen Scrag is a wonderful name, especially said in a northwestern accent. What does Scrag mean? Does it come from anything in particular? Uh, from ye olde English, it means wretched soul, which, you know, I'm quite happy with that, actually. It you know, adds, adds a bit of character. I can remember reading on the end of a, I don't know, Blackpool Pier or something, they had one of these machines as well that you could put your, your surname into and, and look for the origins of it. This machine that was probably full of crap uh, suggested it was uh, Dutch in origin as well, which I've never found anywhere else other than that machine on the end of Blackpool, Blackpool Pier. Uh, but yeah, online searches tend to, to refer to the name as being a, a wretched soul. Oh, well, you, you can't be that wretched because you've written two books, Segway. Uh, uh, this is my hundredth, I'm allowed. A Tournament Frozen in Time, The Wonderful Randomness of the Cup Winner's Cup, published in 2019, and Where the Cool Kids Hang Out, The Chic Years of the... U- I, want to, I want to start calling the the UFA Cup. UFA, right? Yes. Yeah. It is, it is the way it needs to be done. UFA. I'll write down w, uh, Y-O-O-F-A. UFA. Yes. Um, that would be the pronunciation. Both published, uh, you can get it cheaper where you can get it cheaper, but sixteen ninety nine is the retail price published by Pitch. There is a third on the European Cup coming out this year. I could start wherever, because there is so much. But I'm just going to start with uh, this, first of all. Naeem from the halfway line. Because when I was getting into football, I'm sure that... Um, I knew about Naeem before I knew about anyone else because this is the Holders Arsenal uh, going for the Cup Winners' Cup against Tharagotha in 95 and Naeem saw David Seaman off his line and uh, Zaragoza took the title, beating Arsenal in 1995. And this was the Arsenal of Bruce Rioch, but significantly what happened in 1995 in a courtroom somewhere in, was it Belgium or was it uh, Switzerland? I think it was, yeah. Or oh, yeah. he was Belgian. It's one one or the other, yeah. Yeah. Maybe The Hague. But yeah, it was Jean-Marc Bosman. Yeah, I think Um, think Jean-Marc Bosman. The the, the unremarkable in football in terms Jean-Marc Bosman. Uh, Some people will mistake him for the former Ajax striker, John Bosman, who who once upon a time was thought to be an even greater talent than Marco van Basten. Euro 88, he went into the tournament as as, uh, the Netherlands' major striker. Uh, until uh, Van Basten came came back at him, um, but I digress. You're allowed. It's your name on the title. I just I'm I am conscious that though the listener would want three hours of this, I've got to knock it into shape. Uh, that that well, I, I, I why do I say that? I had four hours of Jonathan Wilson. You are welcome to listen <laughs> to the twelve days of Wilson. I said to him, "How long have I got you for?" He said, "Bake Off is at eight. Three and a half hours later, we still hadn't discussed Hungary." So, which I really oh. needed to talk to him about. So, I, since I know that you've got a book to work on, so I don't want to keep you so long. Uh, but what changed football more? The UEFA Champions League or the Bosman ruling? I'd probably say the Bosman ruling because no one saw that coming. Uh, yeah. uh, the, champ- the Champions League, you know, I've, I've seen kind of like articles talking about European Super League going back to the early 1970s. So the like, European club competition was not much more than a decade and a half old by the time there were already people suggesting that it, it should be altered and changed into various different formats. There is the European Cup encounter from 87-88 between Napoli and Real Madrid, 
which is is deemed to be the tipping point the, because they got drawn together in the first round and the powers that be were looking at saying this shouldn't be a first round game this should be you know at the business end of the tournament you know this this is the final but at the first hurdle this shouldn't be the case you know, and, and more big teams should be part of this and, and this is where the the vision of the the Champions League truly gained legs uh, gained traction. So I, I would say that change in the champion, uh, the, the European Cup to become the Champions League, that was always going to happen. But Bosman uh, completely tore a, a, a page of football history apart. And without him, it, it might never have changed that concept of retention of contracts and, and freedom of movement of players, and uh, you know contracts being wound down and be able to move for free. Uh, you know that that was a massive, massive game changer. I think. I think. The magnetic pull of, of the Champions League was always going to happen eventually. The Bosman ruling, you know, might might never have happened. And this it's pertinent because in nineteen eighty nine Barcelona won the Cup Winners' Cup and they could only play three foreigners. Uh, I I'll ask you you don't have to know this, but who were the three foreigners who played for Barcelona in the eighty nine final? Eighty nine final it would be would have been huge. Oh, the 1997 final. It would have been. It wasn't Stoichkov because he was he was in the laggy Warsaw side. Lineker. Yep. Ronald Koeman. Uh, possibly. Yeah, I, I I told a lie. There were only two foreigners. I think Koeman was there. Aloisio, the centre back, was uh, was, right. was Brazilian, uh, and the Sampdoria side whom they beat uh, had Toninho Cerezo and Victor Munoz. Uh, but it was anchored by the front two of Viali and Mancini. So that's yeah. that's um, 89. The 97... Sorry, I'm doing this on the fly. Um, by, by 97, you, you can play so many more foreigners. Um, you, know, you, you, you weren't as restricted. It's around about 94, 95-ish by the time that that old rule of the three foreigners rule starts to die out. Which, in football, in terms, in, in 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 the concept of freedom of player movements, is a fine thing. But in the concept of being a football hipster, it, it was a terrible move, a terrible shame that it came to be. <laughs> yeah, because it meant that the rare nature of some of these players who played for Barcelona in the '97 final uh, was emancipated. Probably the wrong word. It became much more scattergun. You know, to big teams could, you know, Barcelona could go out and buy six or seven foreign players every summer from there on. Uh, whereas when they were restricted to three and before that two, uh, you know, they had to be very measured and very, very sure of who they wanted to buy and, and who they wanted those foreign uh, places to be taken by. Um, though, it, you know, it, it, was, it was serious stuff. You know, they, they had to get it right. There was a greater art to the transfer, the transfer ideals of a, of a team. You know, rather than saying, "Well, you can go out and buy six, seven, eight players, and, and if three of them, four of them don't work, you just ship them out 12, 12 months later and try again." You know that that wasn't the case when you you could only field two and then three. You know you, you had to get it right. And, and the wonderful thing, especially in Italian football, is that they would buy clusters of players from the same country. Hence, you know that that indelible Milan side that had Reichard, Hullet, and Van Basten and. What? While, while, while Internazionale went German and had you know, Klinsmann, Bremer and, and Mateus. And further to that, Barcelona had three from Portugal who were in the 97 final. Victor Bahia, yep. possibly, goalkeeper. Luis Figo. Yep, and a centre-back. Can't think of his name, slipped slip my mind. Couto. 
Oh, yeah, of course. You did know. Yeah, Ronaldo was up front. Bobby Robson was manager. Stoichkov came off the bench. And just looking here, Laurent Fournier got booked in the first minute for Paris Saint-Germain. I'd I'd love to hear the story about that. Maybe he was just... (laughs) And too energetic in his tackle, because this was, of course, 1997, where you could, well, could you tackle from behind or had they outlawed it by then? It started to frown, Bobby. A, a first minute booking is, is just a case of being too pent up as the whistle goes and, uh, and flying into that first challenge a little bit too enthusiastically. Right, so I think that the best way to do this to speed uh, is in the form of a quiz, uh, so, what was the last year of the Cup Winners' Cup? 99. And who won it that season? Lazio, Spaniel and Eriksson's Lazio. Yeah. Which Belgian team contested three finals in three years, winning it in 76 and 78? And what? And true or false, there is a These Football Times piece on Robert Rensenbrink that is very good, written by yourself. Uh, there is, which I think was in the Netherlands magazine. Uh, but there might be one online, possibly by Gary Thacker, unless unless my magazine one's been put online, which we chat sometimes. It, it has got your it's got your byline on it, and Gary is one of the uh, figures from the Football Times podcast. And big up Omar Salim, who let me write for these Football Times in the Paleolithic era. It is a wonderful site, and it is great to see all these magazines. Have you contributed to many of them? Uh, the magazines have contributed to all. I thought so. And this is yes. there was one on Maradona or one on Brazilian football. Yes, we did. A, yeah, we did a Brazilian one. Uh, I think that was one of the early ones. Uh, but recently, yes, we've done a Maradona one, which was at subscribers' request. Really, mm-hmm. uh, we'd already focused on doing the the club specific one that we we're doing, which was Leeds United. Yeah, people just you know we, we, we floated it on Twitter, and, and people said yeah they want they wanted it. So it was a case of well, he is he's the one we were doing anyway, but he is he is Maradona as well, um, and, and doing to do that one was just a just a joy to do. And I, I took on his uh, his years at Napoli, um, which you know was just just hypnotic, really. You know, it, it was the best the best time of his his football and club career, uh, certainly in Europe. You know, it, 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 some of the stuff that he did there is just the. Uh, some of the most iconic stuff, just that warm-up against Bayern Munich prior to the, the UEFA Cup semi-final. Oh, I saw the footage. Uh, it's, Amazing. It's, it's just incredible you know, to, to watch. You know, the laces undone and then the control and mastery of the ball. Uh, you know, you, you could have just gone into the stadium, watched that and gone home and, and, and it would have been, you know, uh, you know, had your money's worth from your ticker. And of course... Uh, it, it was it's just... Incredible. Of course, that will be in the religion section of the Football Library alongside books by Matt Dickinson and Guillaume Balaguet, who both have Maradona books coming out this year, um, because that's the topic. Um, I noted that Gary Lineker and Diego Maradona would have been in the same school year had they grown up in either Argentina or Leicester. Isn't that incredible? That is, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, I, I always love that you know, Lineker often diffuses the hand of God. By saying, well, you know, if, I, if I'd have had the chance, I'd have done it. You know, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's great when, when, when a you know a player in the opposition side says, "Yeah, I'd, I'd have done that, given half the chance." Then uh, here's a fun fact I've just learned in the form of a question: the '81 Cup Winners' Cup final between Dinamo Tbilisi and Karl Zeiss Jena featured both teams playing what formation and what particular positional quirk of the era? Oh. 
I'm just looking was at the lineups sweeper? here. Yeah, they both played sweepers. Yeah, fascinating. Both being a sweeper. Yeah. Yeah. Was this uh, was this popular in the early eighties? The sweeper system. Uh, not so much across Western Europe, I don't think. Um, Eastern Europe, yes. You know, the, they they were the great proponents of. Uh, playing the game out of defence, you know this this great phrase of being the the crack Eastern Europeans uh, was just a brilliant brilliant phrase, and and they would hit with with speed and yeah that that extra man would just have the freedom to roam. You know it, it was a sweeper. You know it makes you sound like you've got a an you know fifth defender in there. It's a defensive thing, but when played correctly, uh, it's anything but. You know that sweeper would would just basically be a, a deeper lying playmaker almost. Uh, Beck, Beckenbauer wasn't uh, the most defensive defender in the world. Um, you know, we we at Liverpool tried to play sweeper from time to time, late 80s. Uh, Dag Leash implemented it with uh, Jan Mulby playing the role. Uh, and he was a natural for it, but it was just a, a formation that... Although I think I think his teammates couldn't quite get their head around. So it, it was it was jettisoned. But yeah, you know, when, when played correctly, you know that, mm. that that sweeper system is a you know, was a wonderful thing. Um, true or false? This is more for my benefit. Uh, the manager of Dynamo Kiev in their two cup winners' cup wins in seventy five and eighty six was it Lobanovsky both times? Yes. Um, Jonathan Wilson yes, writes about him in detail in some of his books what did you learn when you were writing about not just Kiev but the Eastern European way of playing uh, that brought glory in the Cup Winners' Cup because in 86 it was uh, Bucharest or Red Star it was Bucharest who won the European Cup uh, that year yes uh, Stal Bucharest won the European Cup 86 uh, Dinamo Kiev took the Cup Winners' Cup what, what, what you had was and again you know the end of communism great great for kind of like you know the mankind but at the same time Awful for the football hipster because every nation would keep hold of their best players. Uh, certainly until they hit around about the age of 30 and then concessions would be made to say, you've done your part, you've done your duty uh, in your home nation. Uh, we will allow you to, you know, to, to leave for Western Europe for, you know, uh, a pension payday at, you know, a, a mid-ranging Western European side. And that's the way it work out. You look at Kazmi Dana. Uh, being allowed to leave for Manchester City uh, would be uh, an instance of that. Uh, often players that would be viewed by the biggest clubs in Europe as being over the over the edge of the of the age, uh, being a being a football of purpose for for a prolonged period of time. But uh, it made for opportunistic chances for for, for mid ranging clubs to pick up very very good players. So yes, you know these these Eastern European sides. You know Kiev will get to keep their players. You know it's not like it is now. You know a player uh, becomes a player of prominence for Dino Tbilisi now. They're, they're not going to stay there very very long. They're going to be spirited off uh, first to one of the big uh, Russian clubs, uh, and then off and over to, to Western Europe. Uh, but back then, they, they, they could keep these players for, for pretty much as long as they want until they were willing to, to let them go. Case in point, Georgie Hadji's son is now at Rangers. Yes, you know, it, it, and it's the same, same for the same. It's similar in South America. You know, and any player of uh, you know notable talent is soon spirited away. Uh, whereas you know, in the nineteen eighty two World Cup, Zico was playing his football, still playing his football for Flamengo. 
uh, you know, he didn't go to Europe until until after that. And by the time he did, he was 30, 31. And, you know, the big clubs looked at him and said, no, we can't really buy you now because we'll not get a great deal of shelf life out of you. And he ended up at Udinese. Right. Uh, so, the so, you know, which is, which is absolutely wonderful for Udinese. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but for Zico, the play, you know, he, he missed out on those chances of, of signing for Juventus or Real Madrid or you know, mm-hmm. one of the stellar sides. But yeah, it was the same for the Eastern European sides. And it just it gave them that sense of wonder, and that sense of danger, and that sense of the unknown. And, and you know, there was always something to learn the pre internet days as well. So, you know, uh, you know, we weren't watching kind of like Kazakhstan league football uh, via via you know a stream or anything like that. But it is now you can watch any league, any any team you want. You could see every single game of the season for for, for you know anyone that you wanted. Uh, there are no no surprises. You know, if you if you want to watch it, you can watch it. Back then, it wasn't. You know, you you will get glimpses of these players in these major European competitions, which would be. You know, two rounds before Christmas, a couple of rounds after once, once spring starts yeah. kicking, and then the final. Beyond that, it was the major European international tournaments. So, you know, it just had that sense of occasion. Indeed. A lot of this overlaps. Um, it's the, like the Eastern European version of my conversation about a book called, what is it? Blue and Gold Passion is the name of the book by a chap called Daniel Williamson. Uh, I know yes. that you haven't heard of him, so just for your benefit. Uh, Dan, my conversation with Daniel goes out on Monday. This conversation goes out on Wednesday night, not Thursday night, Wednesday night. And I remember Wednesday night European football. We had to entertain ourselves on Thursday. Uh, but on Sunday, it's River against Boca. Uh, so that proves your point, and hopefully I'll be able to watch that. Uh, do you have any interest in... Daniel's work at Boca, uh, investigating Boca. Oh, Daniel's great. Now, I've known Dan for a good few years. I've, I've, I've uh, shared beers with Dan. You know, we, we, we crossed the great Liverpool Manchester United. Precisely, Dubai, I was but, about to say that. You know, we, yeah. uh, you know, Dan went to university in Liverpool, so he's, uh, you know, he's 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 Liverpool. Uh, he's got Liverpool sympathies as the city goes. Um, so yeah, no, Dan's Dan's ace. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know that that book he's written on Boca Juniors is a wonderful thing, and, and his next one's going to be uh, another another mm-hmm. fantastic another fantastic book. But yeah, you know he, he brings that that side. You know, it's down that you know the, the guiding light behind us doing the Boca Juniors magazine at these football times. You know, when we come to to discuss these magazines, you know, he, you know he, he was out there in Buenos Aires. You know, as part of his uh, university. Uh, career, if you want to, whatever we would want to call it, there. You know, he he went and studied out there, and you know, he he, he just fell for the team. Uh, and you know, it, it's that the, the best books have that passion. You know, they they have that inside line that you know that something that burns bright inside. It's no good writing about something that you just kind of like a bit. Never write a book just for the sake of writing the book because no one's written something on on a certain so- topic. You've got to be invested in it, and Dan was massively, massively invested in his topic there, and uh, and it made for a beautiful book. It's like a pilot light. If the pilot light is burning, you can do anything. And just to be fair, if you want to talk about Stuart Horsfield's book on the eighty-two Brazil side, you can. You don't have to. Oh well, Stu's, Stu's book on on Brazil is just uh, you know an absolute work of art. Basically, you know it, it ticks every single box for me because you know, me and Stu are a similar age. There's only about eighteen months between the two of us. Uh, so everything that I grew up on, he grew up on, 
Um, that Brazil 82 side, that was my first World Cup, that was his first World Cup. Uh, and every podcast we do, if the, you know, there's always a chance that it'll drift to Brazil 1982, <laughs> no matter what we're talking about. Uh, just as it was for, 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 for me with Denmark as well, you know, the oh. LKR loud drop side, which is my, you know, between that and the, uh, the Soviet Union of Euro 88, of Belenov and Protasov and all of those, they're my two favourite European international sides of all time I, I egged him on all the way through that book and it was it was great because uh, like the the tone of podcast that we do for these football times you know always say it, is that you know we do these book ones and authors come on and, and stuff like that and uh, Gary had written a book and then I wrote a book and Stu, Stu said I had to write a book because I felt like a fraud doing the podcast I was the only one who hadn't written a book he said out, out of the three of us so he said so we, uh, part, part of that you know, was 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 what uh, what drove him on, but now the, the the passion he has for that topic and this uh, is and that team. This is a book just, that, oh, as I'll as I'll uh, talk with him about. It's 1982 Brazil, the glorious failure, and from what I've heard, the book is not a glorious failure. Um, no, it's, I, it's, it's it's absolutely brilliant. He spoke to some wonderful people. He, so he's got some great stories about like the interviews he did. Uh, you know, if you if you're on with him, uh, ask him about the interview he did with. Oh, it's going to annoy me now with uh, the Soviet Union International. Oh, I can see him. I can see him, but I can't think of his name at the minute. All right, uh, I'll, I'll put. You know, I'll ask him on. Ask, yeah, ask, ask him about that. That's and, a uh, good yeah. trail. That's a hell of a trail. So I'll, I'll talk to Stuart. Yeah, Stuart had the the great experience of. He, he was sent a picture on social media that he put up on social media, and it, it's Zico. Yeah, I saw that uh, with 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 his book. It, just mind blowing. And, and I absolutely made up for him and his success with it. Would it be nice if Alex Ferguson cradled your book, A Tournament Frozen in Time? Because he won the Cup Winners' Cup um, twice. Which do you think, and having uh, written about both of them, which do you think was more pivotal to his, or will prove more pivotal to his legacy? Winning with Aberdeen in 83 or winning with Man United against the Barcelona of Johan Cruyff in 91? I think they're both as important as each other. Uh, you know, the win with Aberdeen is the the pinnacle of his of his time there. You know, he won league titles and, and cups, and you know, there was there was there was more success to come in the in the, the last the next three years after he won the cup winners' cup. But that was a, a massive thing. I mean, I remember that final. Remember it well. Remember watching it live on television, and 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 it was a a well earned win as well. There was nothing lucky about it. No disrespect to Aston Villa here, but when they won the 1982 final, they it was a final where they'd often been under the cosh, in it, and then they held Bayern, kept them out, and then snatched this goal. So there was a little bit of hit and done about it. That year after, Aberdeen were by far the better side against a Real Madrid side that had some serious players in it and, uh, and were led by a coach by uh, uh, Alfredo de Stefano. Yeah. You know, so this is this is just massive. It's the achievement that puts him on the map. Clubs from from across Europe are looking at him as a, a viable option of, of employment and you know Tottenham want to take him to White Hart Lane and you know eventually he goes to to Old Trafford via taking over the Scotland job after the death sad death of Jockstein. Yeah. That that Aberdeen victory is a huge for Aberdeen but it's the springboard for his career as well. Why would he go uh, to but, Manchester United if he couldn't manage in European competition until 1991? 
the challenge. You know, it was a huge, huge job to take on. You know, it, it was it was a massive, massive job. By eighty, he comes in kind of like autumn eighty six. What are we talking by then? Nearly twenty years. It's fast approaching twenty years since they've won the league title. You know, Liverpool keep winning it. You know, if not, if not season on season, then they, they only seem to not win it once once every five years. You know, it, it, it was just like the biggest job available to him. You know, uh, some people say the biggest job in, in certainly British football. Uh, as a Liverpool fan, I, I, I disagree with that, but uh, I can understand, you know, uh, as the, the football the football fan in me, the general football fan in me, you know, no one under, under any illusions just how big of a job that is. And it was a job he couldn't, he couldn't have turned down. You know, he couldn't have turned down. He, he'd, he'd done everything he could possibly do with, with Aberdeen and the chance to rebuild Manchester United into a, a, a challenging force, a, a force that could you know, strive for league titles and win league titles was just a, an impossible challenge to to turn down. I mean, how, how, how could he turn down that? But he wanted to bring you through and dot, dot, dot. But um, a tournament frozen in time is A, great title for a book. B, it's a great cover. What photo's on the cover? It is um, the 1981 final. It's um, Dino Mutabalisi versus Carl Zicciana. And it is... I think the equalising goal. So in the scoreboard at the back, I think it's it's one nil to to Carl Zijena. They held the lead for about four minutes, and then uh, Tbilisi equalised, and and the wonderful Vitaly Dabaselia scores this hypnotic winning goal that is very much like uh, a reversible version of uh, Ricky Villa's goal in the 1981 FA Cup final replay, which was played just. 24 hours later at Wembley. Uh, you know, it's uncanny. The twists and the turns, find, find it on YouTube, the, the twists and the turns that he makes. It's that, it's that shifting of, 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 you know, stopping dead and turning one way and the other. Although it's, they, they kind of come at it from a different, I think, I think Zafia go right to left or left to right, whichever way it is, Dallasalia goes the opposite way. So, but the, the, there are a lot of similarities between. So, you know, he, he hammers his, his, his goal home rather than rolls the ball under Corrigan. Um, you know, the, 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 there are differences, but there are a lot of similarities there. And, and Vitor Dalaselli is a, a tragic character as well because you know, he, he went to the World Cup with the Soviet Union in '82, and I think it's late '82 or late '83. He uh, he died in a in a car crash, uh, rushing off to. To help his brother, who's just been arrested, he is in a car that falls from a mountain road into mm. a river below, and you know is found 13 days later. Um, oh boy! Uh, really touching thing was, and, and and probably out of all the things I've ever done, you know, the feedback that I've got, certainly the greatest thing, and uh, it was his daughter. She she came and found me on on Facebook, I think it was, uh, just to to thank me for the the book cover because her dad was on her. Uh, and, and she works for the Georgian FA. Uh, she's in ad- administration and, and women's football. And uh, it was just one of the most touching things for his daughter to, to come and seek me out and say, you know, thank, thanks for that. That's, that's my dad on that front cover. Just the, the most favourite thing I've ever had through writing. Pertinent to that, I mentioned that the lob also spoke to Bill and David about football's black pioneers and Tony Collins has yes. just passed away and they spoke to Tony as part of that book uh, and 
this chat is already in the football library uh, as you listen to this. And I think it's that the personal connection with those stories. Of course, you spoke to Neville Southall, which must have been horrific as a Liverpool fan, hearing Nev for 90 minutes bang on about life and everything else. Um, oh, that was, no, no, that was wonderful. It was, it was, yeah, just one of the best hours or so I think I've ever had there. You know, as a Liverpool supporter, but I was never grown, I was never brought up to, to hate the team yeah, yeah, from the other I'm, side of the I'm, park, you know, and, and uh, the cousins who support them and kicking the ball around, uh, around the streets or over the fields or whatever, you know, half us Liverpool sports, half us Everton fans. So growing up and having that era in the 1980s when they challenged as well, you know, it, it was just a great, a great, great thing. So, you know, for me, I've never been a, an Everton hater. Don't get me wrong, I always want Liverpool to be more successful. Than, you know, if, if, if I could be offered the Champions League and the Premier League uh, next season, I'd happily, you know, have Everton winning the FA Cup and the League Cup. Uh, but yeah, Southall was just a wonderful, wonderful person to talk to. Uh, and that chat is... Um... On uh, these football times, if you type in these football times, the lob, you'll get it. We're talking a few days before Liverpool play Everton at Anfield. Scared? Uh, no, I, I don't. I, I would have been once upon a time, but I, I don't do pre-match nerves anymore. You know, I, I tend to ignore uh, the build-up to, to games. I, I never watch the the hour of you know incessant oh, chat ex- before inexhaustible. Match. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've no no time for it. I've got other things. I've got kids. I've, I've no time. I've no time for that. Um, so yes, I I'll often, you know, especially if I'm writing as well and, and and what have you, I'll often not think of a match until it's kickoff time. Five minutes, or I need to get it on the telly. Yeah, you know, as, as it is at the So I, I just don't allow myself that you know that chance to get het up before a game, no matter what that game is. You know, what 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 a manager they've got. Carlo Ancelotti is is just one of the greatest. Absolutely love him. Uh, I think he's a great character. You know that that eyebrow. You know he is yeah. he is an Italian footballing Roger Moore in that respect. <laughs> uh, you know we'll, we'll always be interlinked with him because of Istanbul mm-hmm. and you know, both the two thousand five and two thousand seven Champions League finals. I remember him as a player. Uh, you know I think he missed the eighty four European Cup final through injury possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I remember him part of that Milan side with Hullet and Van Basten and, and Rijkaard and being in the Italian national team. You know, massive amount of respect for him. You know, Everton Everton have finally got a proper class act as manager. Not not down in some of the ones that they've had. Uh, you know, they've had some you know great potential. Roberto Martinez, you know, really tried to play some expansive football for them uh, before it it it, uh, it drifted off. And you know, Kendall was an incredible manager. Uh, but they've had yeah, they've had some some shockers as well over the years. Indeed. Um, and you, listener, will know what happened at Anfield on the 20th of February. It finished Liverpool 6, Everton 5. It would be nice if it finished 6-5. I mean, not for the purist, but for the... Oh, I'll take a 6-5. Oh, yeah, of a distance of, what, three or four days until the game. I'll take a 6-5. Hey, you know who's not going to play that game? Jordan Pickford. Oh, no. No, he will not play that game. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's got so many scars when it comes to the... To the derby match. Yeah, you know, the last he, two, yeah, two of them. Two of them. Surely they wouldn't put him in for a third. Although Ancelotti, mind games, although they've been using Olsen recently, perhaps for this reason. Um, yeah. There is every chance next year that Everton will play in the UEFA Europa League, which is the first and last time it's been mentioned. Uh, before UEFA changed things, the UEFA Cup, the, sorry, the UEFA Cup 
was the tournament. It was where the cool kids hung out, in particular the chic years, between 1972 and 1999? 97, 97 was the last, last two-legged final. Two-legged final, final. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. who won that two-legged final? That last one was won by Schalke. Ooh, yes, they beat Inter Milan, who were going for a third. Uh, they eventually did win a third in 98. Yes, that was, that was the first one, a final. They played uh, Sven Jorn Eriksson's Latio. But yes, Inter Milan, that 97 final, were, were, were managed by uh, a certain Roy Hodgson as well. Was this the same Roy Hodgson who managed Gothenburg in the 1980s? Malmo. Malmo. Uh, Sorry, he managed Malmo, yeah, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was a Malmo Hounstads, possibly. And, yeah, 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 yeah. I just he, saw, he I was... saw that Gothenburg had won the, the UEFA Cup twice. In which years? In 82 and 87. And uh, Sven-Jorn Eriksson was the manager of that first one there. Ah, and whom did Gothenburg that, beat yeah, right. in that 82 final? Uh, Hamburg, who then went on to win the European Cup in 83. So, you know, this is the strength of the sides that they were dealing with. And, and in 87 against Dundee United, that was a wonderful... They, they, that, that 1980s Dundee United are my Scottish team of choice. Uh, you know, brilliant kit, that orange kit, the Adidas stripes down the down the sleeves, the black shorts. There was something almost almost Netherlands-ish about them. You know, and you'd always get the goals, the Scottish goals on football focus from the previous weekend. Oh, nice. You know, it, it was always seemed to be virtually every week Paul Sturrock and Eamon Bannon hitting them in from distance. And there was just something epically stylish. You know, I had nothing against Celtic and Rangers. I just, I just, I was just hypnotised by this nineteen eighties. Dundee United side, Jim McLean was mm. the manager. Well, yeah, you know, difficult they, manager they, and a bit of a megalomaniac, yeah. but um, he got results. He got, he turned, did get results. You know, he, he, you know, to, to take them to the league title and, and you know, League Cup successes and UEFA Cup final, should have got to the 84 European Cup final as well. Uh, you know, that that is some, some achievement. Mm. Uh, there are some dynasties in particular the 1970s i'll pass over the team who beat um with they beat alaves in 2001 but they also won it in 73 and 76 you were too young for these yes too young. i mean I, I grew up on the stories of those sides my dad eulogized about these these sides of the 60s and the 70s and uh, I, you know i grew up on on the players that i watched and particularly that that bob paisley side and you know they were the team that i saw you know, with my, my own eyes, but then I would also be hearing the stories of the sides of the of Shankly's sides of the seventies, sixties, and seventies. This is the fortieth anniversary. Some big anniversaries in British football this year: um, Arsenal fifty years of the double winning team, and forty years uh, since the late Bobby Robson managed Ipswich Town. Was this Muren and Tyson? Had they brought in the two Dutchmen by then? Yes, they had. Yeah, Muren and Tyson were part of that eighty-one winning side. They were going for a treble, you know. They they were in the box seat for the league title. They reached the semi-finals of the FA Cup. They lost out to Man City in extra time. Villa Park, Aston Villa overhauled them for the title. They just had too many games uh, at the end of the season, basically, and, and ran out of steam. Uh, it was a great Aston Villa side that won the title. There's still arguments about you know who was the best side, and you know you, you never win, you never undeservedly win a league title. What tends to happen sometimes, however, is that there can be more than one team that would be deserving champions, like Liverpool with, with Man City the other season, 97 points and not winning it. You, know, you, you can't say City didn't deserve to win it, but you know you can have seasons where you know, 
more than one side would be the deserving winner. Uh, 85, 86, when Liverpool won it, you know, Everton and West Ham, you know, there's, there's, yeah. there's just seasons like that. And this was one of those seasons, 80, 81, Ipswich would have been worthy champions, but Villa beat them to the punch in the end. Uh, but that was a Villa side that were out, you know, they weren't in Europe and they were out of the two domestic cups quite early. So they, they played a significant amount of fewer games than Ipswich did. But it was only uh, six be, in 81. It was uh, only the quarter-final, semi-finals and the two-legged final. Well, six is significant, isn't it? It can be when, you know, you add an extra six games there and then what, the UEFA Cup? Sorry, and the FA Cup. The third yeah. and, and, the, and the run to the FA Cup. So, hang on, well, the UEFA Cup you're looking at. Yeah, 11 yeah. games to win the UEFA Cup at that time. Uh, and then, you 13, know, yes, you know, those, those was, it thir- was it 13? It is 13 so, now, it was 11, yeah. It was 13 now, yeah, it was 11, yeah. Then, so, and then the FA Cup, I mean, I couldn't tell you if, if Ipswich had any replays along that, that route to the semi-finals. So with a 42-game season, I don't, I don't know where they got in the League Cup, for instance, but I'm pretty sure Villa tipped out of the two domestic cups quite early mm. and, and weren't in Europe, so that would have helped them quite a bit but you know it's it's nonetheless you know it was a, it was a great Villa side and they deserve to win the title uh, but this Ipswich side yeah you know the having fallen short in the title race having lost out on the FA Cup in the semi-finals they they, they did it in the UEFA Cup and, and it would have been a massive travesty had they, had they not walked out of that season with at least one trophy it was a wonderful wonderful side Paul Mariner who my wife is vaguely related to um, as part of that side uh, Alan Brazil um, Terry Butcher, Paul Cooper, brilliant goalkeeper yeah. who could uh, absolutely adept at saving penalties. Ray Stewart was the penalty taking king for West Ham, and Paul Paul Cooper had this propensity to be able to save penalties. You know, if if if, if he if he conceded a penalty, it, it tended to be quite quite a shock. Um, and it was you know Mills, uh, Burley, Craig Burley was part of that side, but he was injured for the final. Uh, Mills, uh, you know, so so many great Eric Gates, Russell Osman, you know. Yeah. The, they did have Kevin Callahan on the bench. You know, another side that didn't really play with a winger as such. They had a, a bit of a, like a diamond in midfield. And but then Kevin Kevin Callahan as, as a winger was a, an ace to throw on if you need someone to to run. You know, and, and to to have a different kind of approach. So yeah, that that was a, a such, such a great Ipswich side. They, they were so consistent for for well over a decade. And Bobby Robson, you know, altered that side again and again and again. Uh, you know, I think there was something like a ten-year span. Uh, his last ten years in charge, there was only one season where they didn't qualify for Europe. Massively consistent. You know, it wasn't just eighty-one that they had a pop at the title as well. There were there were two or three other occasions that they would have been good value. They gave Liverpool a run for the money in eighty-one, eighty-two. They were in with a shout for the double in seventy-four, seventy-five. They were they were in the mix of it seventy-six, seventy-seven. Uh, so to have these these successes, there's. They won the FA Cup '78, the UEFA Cup in '81. You know, it could have been so much more as well. Yep. And uh, for more on Bobby Robson next week, I welcome into the library Harry De Cosimo, who has published a book all about Bobby Robson's time at Newcastle United. So I'm sure Ipswich will get a mention there. The Real team of '85 and '86 was the Fab Five, the the big five um, forward line. And they won it in eight yes. consecutive years. Um, there's a great article on 442. I imagine it's on the website. Who was more fun to write about? That Real Madrid team? The Juventus side who reached three finals in the early 1990s? The Mönchengladbach side who reached, uh, in the golden era of German football, four finals in the 70s and 1980? 
or the Inter Milan team of the 90s who won three of their four finals? Ooh, they're all a bit close, but I'd definitely go Borussia Mönchengladbach. Now, they are my German team of choice. You know, they're, they're so interlinked with Liverpool, having contested a UEFA Cup final against them and a, and a European Cup final, another European Cup semi-final beyond that. You know, they, they were just such an iconic side and, and success is just so located to the 1970s. I think, I think they've only ever won, you know, two or three trophies outside of that decade. But they were, they went toe-to-toe domestically with Bayern Munich and, you know, they they took the UEFA Cup twice, uh, lost two further finals, lost a European Cup final, lost another semi-final. They are one of the best sides not to up on the European Cup. Uh, you know, they, they had two defined eras throughout that 70s as well. They, they, the first half of the 70s under Hennes Weisweiler, who would eventually leave for, for Barcelona. You know, built the side, would come to Netzer in it, and, and Jupp Heynckes, wow. and you know, such a uh, an epically talented side that that Borussia Mönchengladbach, and then when he went, uh, Udo Lattek came in, and Udo Lattek had been the the man who had built Bayern Munich. He'd won them their first European Cup, and they were struggling domestically, seventy four, seventy five, and he uh, he was sacked by by the properly. You know, although Bayern went on to win another couple of European Cups without him, it was it just played into the hands of of their rivals basically. So, so for, for Borussia Mönchengladbach to say, well, if you don't want him, we'll have him. Uh, and then he put his spin on, on Borussia Mönchengladbach by, uh, with uh, Alan Siemenson in the side and, and, and all of this. And you know, two very different approaches from two very different managers. Uh, but then there, was, there were you know, players who, who crossed both the boundaries there. Your Pinekiss played for both sides of, of that divide and um, Bertie Vokes was part of that side. Uli Steelicker would play as well. You know the, the the names just trip off the tongue of that that uh, such an incredible era of football. And for me, you know there are two sides that uh, as as a Liverpool fan that that gee, I can't dislodge from my consciousness and, and B and Borussia Mönchengladbach and Saint Etienne being the other one. Yeah. Uh, you know, still look for the results now. You know, if if I'm thumbing through. Uh, uh, French league and, and German results or watching games. Uh, absolutely, always delighted to trip across the the path. And you know, it's it's been great to see Gladbach being relevant again and and reaching the Champions League. And uh, you know, I, I, I think it was last season that they were certainly in the first half of the campaign. Uh, they were keeping pace with Bayern Munich. Uh, you know, if, if there was a team I would love to win uh, the Bundesliga, it, it would be Gladbach. Who was the team who beat Blackburn in the '95 Champions League? I remember them having having trouble with was it Swedish or Norwegian part timers of Trelle- Trelleborg or something. Oh, it could like have been that. Trelleborg actually. Yeah, um, yeah, scant, yeah. I remember that one. So that, he, that's that's stuck in the mind somewhere. Is the Gary McAllister free kick stuck in your mind twenty years on? Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful moment. The the Gladys Street end. Amongst the away section uh, in in the upper as well because it's a wooden stand part part built of wood, which yeah, it's a is a, stand, yeah. you know for me there's nothing nothing it's a still a charming thing and um, you know there's a, a certain bounce in the in the in the in the woodwork there when you celebrate a goal, <laughs> uh, especially as, as enthusiastic as that one, uh, and it was such an important goal as well. You know we we lost to Leeds 
on Good Friday at Anfield and then went to, uh, to Goodison on the Easter Monday. It had been a mad game, absolutely mad game with Leder. Babel had scored, Fowler had scored. Uh, they got a penalty back. I think we had a chance to, to wrap it up at 3-1. Fowler missed a penalty, hit the post, I think. Uh, then, then we had Biscan sent off and it, it just, yeah, it, it, was, it was a win that was in the palm of our hands. We let it go and then we grabbed it back four minutes into injury time with this mad free kick from about 44 yards. I, st- I still so, remember it vividly, that goal. In fact, if you were to read where the cool kids hung out in a digital form in the football library, and I do hope to do this, I will get like sick formers and students to find the hyperlinks to every goal or every match or highlights so that you can oh, click a, on it. Yeah, the amount of people that will turn around, they, they read it and then they turn, and they've done the same with Stu's book, is that uh-huh. they say, oh, they, they, they read a, a passage about a certain game or a certain goal or a, or a moment in a match and they put the book down and then head off to YouTube to, to watch it for the context of it. Uh, you know, I did a podcast with uh, Tim Capel, the <laughs> excellent commentator Tim Capel. Uh, his book podcast, and he said he was doing exactly the same. He said he, he was reading it, uh, you know, on the on the tube, you know, and, and he'd, he'd kind of like you know, stop reading and go and have a look at YouTube, and then go back and read it again and, and stuff like that. But it's it's great, you know. People people get involved and they interact and they come and find me on Twitter and and, and you know, tell me all about it and what what games meant most to them and stuff like that. And you know, for me, it's it's always great when people do that. Yes, I've just found this Tim Capel chap. I plead ignorance. Talkingsportsbooks.com. Talkingsportsbooks.com. You've written these two books, A Tournament Frozen in Time and Where the Cool Kids Hung Out, past tense. Um, do the kids read it? Uh, my kids don't. I mean, they're proud of them. They, they like to find where their name is written in the, in the, you know, in the, the dedications and stuff like that. How old, uh, how old are so, they now? Uh, my youngest is seven. She'll be eight in in April, uh, and my oldest is thirteen. Ooh, and I have a stepdaughter who's, who's who's just on the brink of thirteen as well. But yeah, no. The great thing about my son is that he he went into to school one day, and and his, one of his teachers had said, "Ah, oh, I've just been reading this this book by uh, a fellow called Stephen Scud." Spotted his, his surname. He said, "You're not you're not related to him, are you?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, it's my dad." <laughs> and so, so he's had this kind of like my, my lad's had a, a bit of kind of like you know celebrity status in his school now, just because you know I, I, I've written a book about something I remember from when I was a kid. My my dad, the writer. I, it would be remiss of me not to finish this chat with you, Stephen Scrag, without asking about the UEFA Conference League, which begins around the time your third book comes out later in the year. It's the biggest load of crap, isn't it? Uh, yes. It's, I, I don't, it, it's it's not particularly attractive. I mean, again, if, if they'd have brought it in and then said it's two-legged knockout and there's a two-legged final at the end of it, to, to offer something that was just a little bit different. But the danger of, of UA for doing something like that is that people will enjoy it and you know, they, they will see the difference between these homogenised group stages and uh, that they've... they've, they've Inflicted upon the Champions League and the you know, the the UEFA Cup, the UEFA Cup as was, they were they were a joy. The two legged games were an absolute joy. One mistake and that was it. One bad night and you were out. You know the great thing about Stu is that you know, his day job is that he's a lecturer, uh, sports science, and and you know the kids that he, he deals with often have no idea about how football used to be, and he was chatting to them about. Um, about the, the, the differences between the Champions League and the European Cup. 
and they couldn't get their heads around. They were all be kind of like late teens and, and stuff like that, and they could not get. They were they were literally open mouthed at, at the concept that you had to win your league title to be involved in the European Cup, mm. and if you if you if you you ballsed it up, then that was it. Back to square one. Win your league title to get back in it, and they were just kind of like incredulous at this this, this concept. So your literature. It doesn't say it's better because we have Kylian Mbappe now scoring hat-tricks against Barcelona and we have video assistance that means um, that if we replayed the 66 World Cup final, it would be given as a Jeff Hurst goal. Their progress cannot be halted. But there's something about football in the black and white era or the, the era before commercialism and sports washing and money that just feels more human and we still have that at the lower leagues if you go to Tranmere or Accrington or any of or, well Salford less so but that kind of football still exists it's just that the elite has drifted away it's like an iceberg we've got global football warming and the iceberg of the elite has drifted away but you are the question is do you cling to the past do you cling to it is that why you're writing these books about pre-millennial I, uh... football I embrace the past. Uh, I, I still find great beauty in, in football now. You know, as a Liverpool fan, I can't, how, how can I watch Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool and, and not find great beauty in it and, and enjoyment out of it? Most Lars a wonderful player. You know, Sadio Mane can be jaw-dropping. You know, some of the stuff that Roberto Firmino does is just ridiculous. Uh, you know, so the, I do find great, you know, joy out of modern football as well. I, what, what I look for in the past is those sensory parts that have gone you know like I said before there are no surprises anymore because you can watch every league every team that sense of occasion has gone I would say is the big thing and football always felt like you know that, that sense of occasion to it that it was something something to be in awe of and now it, it isn't because it's everywhere it's, it's seven days a week it's 365 days a year 24 hours a day you know Back in in the old and old currency, you know, football kind of switched off in early to mid May, and and you wouldn't really hear much of it until the beginning of August. You know, it would become the cricket, you know, the cricket, cricket season. season. Yeah, especially tennis would be, yeah. You know, uh, you know, as kids, you know, we would follow the summer through the sports that were on the television. You know, it, when it was the French Open, because we get you know, the French Open to tip up on Sunday grandstand and stuff like that. Uh, you know, What's so grandstand, Dad? Grandstand Sunday, yeah. <laughs> grandstand Sunday, grandstand was, was was the one as well. Yeah. So you know, we'd we'd all, we'd all go off to the local park where there would be like a, a tennis course and, and go, you know, bat a ball around for a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, even even someone over there, Lee over the road, had a, had, had a set of golf clubs. We, we'd just go to kind of like the school field and, and batter a golf ball up and up and down several times over when it was the open. Uh, you know, it's just all, all of that. You know, it, it's it's kind of evaporated I mean uh, I don't know whether kids now feel that sense of occasion you know it's like the FA Cup final used to be the biggest thing going because you know live football in the UK was still a rarity now you know an FA Cup final in recent seasons has been played on a, 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 a on a day when there's still been a Premier League programme you know of fixtures you know five, a 5.15 kickoff is just the most unattractive kickoff on a Saturday imaginable you know, give it give it that that big up. You know, if if you yeah, fine. If, if television wants it to be in a more accessible time of day, 
stick it on as a 7pm kickoff. You know, have, have a proper build-up from 5 o'clock. Make it feel like it's something special. I think I'm just looking, you know, for me, it's just you know, looking to, to get back in touch with all those things that made me fall in love with football. You know, and, and within that, you know, it has a knock-on effect to now. Uh, you know, in contemporary terms, it, it, it it's designed to make me want to stay in touch with the game now, you know, and find find the good in it. You know, there's good at the top of the, the game as well as, as down down at the bottom. But yeah, you know, it, it's a different good. A different good is a very good title of what could be your fourth book. This seems it'll have to be the it'll have to be the sixth or seventh. I've already got kind of like fourth and the fifth on the drawing board. Oh great! Well, I'll have you I'll have you back in the library and we can host you. And I'm sure you are still writing for these football times. In fact, there's a piece as we speak that's just gone up about about talking of the Danish dynamite team, the Loudrups. Who's better? Final question: Brian or Michael? Oh, Michael, without doubt. Uh, you know, but Brian's not a million miles behind. I think I think people disrespect Brian somewhat. Uh, you know, he, he's seen as being a tribute act to his brother when you know he was a talented player. He's the one right. that won the trophies. Michael didn't go. Yeah, he, did, he didn't go to Euro '92. Yeah. You know, he, he wasn't for it. But yeah, Mike, Michael was uh, you know, the, the most scientific player imaginable. You know, that that textbook career that took him to Turin with Juventus. We farmed him out to Lazio, so he went to Rome. It was Barcelona, it was Madrid, it was Amsterdam, you know, all of these iconic places. And, you know, to be part of that Danish side that came to win a penalty shootout of the Euro 84 final, to be part of that Denmark side at the World Cup that played so brilliantly in the group stages and then imploded, majestically imploded against Spain in the last 16. Uh, You know, he'd just been part of some of the the greatest football teams and, and and the era as well. You know, the biggest regret of, of being a Liverpool fan is the fact that we we let him slip through our fingers over over uh, the length of the contract that was on offer. You know, there's there's that image of him on the front of a, a Danish football magazine with a Liverpool shirt on and a bowler hat. Bizarre kind of combination, but it was you know the, the transfer had been agreed. You know, they he his dad wanted, who was his agent, wanted a three year contract. And we were dealing in four-year contracts, and while this was going on, in came Juventus and, and, and snatched him. Um, you know, majestic player. Within that, you know, I'll always, I'll always err towards Preben Elkiar as my favourite Danish player of all time. Just absolutely hypnotised by him. You know, the, the high llama of Danish football, and that's that's even taken Alan Siemensen out of the picture, who, who was a you know multiple European footballer of the year. Uh, but yeah, Michael shades it over Brian. Brian was a great player. Some, some similarities between the two as well in, uh, and that would have been a, a chemical thing, it would have been a biological thing uh, mm-hmm. just in the way that, that, that they've been created by their parents you know, you, some of the, the way that I start that article that, that describes the two of them, their relationship and this is part of a, a series that, that James Kelly uh, dreamed of, which we've called Brothers in Arms and it's about football and brothers and, and this is why the two have been bracketed together in this article I wrote. Um, you know, at the start of the article, I describe a goal and then I give the reader the the question of, well, who scored it? Was it Michael or was it Brian? Yeah. And then I describe another goal. and Was it Brian or was it Michael? And I don't give the answer. No, you uh, don't. When, you I've, I, I, I've, when I've read through it, even I've kind of had to think who's, which, which, which one was scored by it. 
uh, you know, there's there's a goal that Brian scored for Rangers where he loops it in from virtually the touchline. Some of the stuff he could do with football was as good as his brothers. But yeah, Michael Michael Shader. Thank you very much. Thesefootballtimes.co slash author slash scraggy74. Your Twitter is scraggy underscore 74. There's about six pages of articles that will keep you entertained should this lockdown continue into mid-March. But Stephen Scragg, both your books and your um, future books are in the Football Library. You are welcome to visit any time. Enjoy all this European football starting again this week as we speak. Have a wonderful rest of this lockdown with your three or three children. Oh, I will. Just like a library, just like a-